The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Last study dealt with the corrupt spiritual leadership of the priestly family, the family that was administering at the central worship site of Shiloh, the central sanctuary for the nation. We remember that the word of the Lord was rare. We remember that there had been no dream theophanies, there'd be no vision of the Lord. That was rare. But all of that changed because one night when it was dark when it was dark both literally and figuratively the Lord stood and he spoke as an expression of grace to the nation as an expression of grace to Samuel the boy Samuel the Lord came and stood and spoke and remember what Samuel said? Hineni. Here I am to hear, to understand, to obey you and your words. So please speak. And he did. Now the whole nation from Dan to Beersheba, they are aware that the Lord has called and the Lord has installed his servant, his spokesman, his prophet. Have any of us found ourselves saying Hineni since last study? God's Word is true. And we need to kneel before the Lord of the Word. And when we and our feelings don't agree with God's Word, then we and our feelings are liars. It becomes that powerfully clear for us, and we need to remember that. Now we're tasked with moving through three chapters. We're going to need to necessarily spot read a little bit, consider the whole. We're certainly going to miss some details. But then dig into the meaning of this, this section, this portion of Scripture, in order to understand and respond to God's Word of truth as it comes to us tonight. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Starting at 1b, for we covered the, the first part of the fourth chapter in last study's lesson. And we'll read the first 11 verses and then we'll, I'll announce where we're going to move next. So let's follow together so that both the eye gate and the ear gate are involved, but more importantly, that the Spirit would be working so that the heart gate and the soul gate are open and receptive to God's truth as well. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They had camped in Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up the line in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, 
Israel was defeated before the Philistines, killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, of whom we know some already were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout. So the earth resounded, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. Be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's jump down to verses 18 now. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. Then jumping down to 21, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the work of God has, for the ark of God has been captured. So in chapter 4, the ark is captured. In chapter 5, the ark is in exile. It's outside of Israel. Now look, we'll read together verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. 
Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up before Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. We now realize that in chapter 5, the ark moves from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. And now we come to chapter 6, and we find the return of the ark, starting at the first verse of the sixth chapter. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God, the God of Israel, don't don't send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, and, and then you'll be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there's never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, Then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Down to verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. 
And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Then down to 15, please. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And then 19 to 21. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jearim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Well, kind of spot reading, moving around, not able to read really all of the words of these three chapters. What we realize is that Samuel has been established. He assumed spiritual leadership of the nation. And the prophecy about Eli and his family, given to an unnamed man of God in chapter 2, and to the man of God, the boy becoming man of God, Samuel in chapter 3, now we realize that this first word from God through two prophets, two of his prophets, is going to be fulfilled. And that's what we see in this section as well. But what's interesting is that Samuel leaves the story. He's just been settled and established as God's man, God's spokesman, God's prophet. But now for three chapters, the Ark of the Covenant is what is in view. And Samuel comes back into the narrative in chapter 7. We're noticing in these three chapters that there is confusion about the Lord on the part of the Israelites. There's confusion about the Lord on the part of the Israelites. And just maybe, there's some confusion on our part about the Lord as well. Think first about scene number one, Israelites and the God who is not there. Israel goes to battle with the Philistines. This is Israel's greatest enemy during the time of the judges in the early monarchy. The name Philistines occurs 150 times in 1 and 2 Samuel. So we realize this is a, a frequently mentioned entity. They were the arch enemy of Israel at this particular time frame. And part of that reason was that the superpowers are less than super right now. It's as if there's a little bit of a a lull in the power, there's a bit of a vacuum. And so these sea peoples that we don't know a lot about, these sea peoples who had come and were settling in the land from the border with Egypt up past Yafo, in that section, the Philistines have come and settled, and they become a threat. To Israel. They become a real problem for them. And for quite a while, uh, we remember that Samson went, at, went up against the Philistines. And, and Samuel is going to go up against the Philistines as a leader. 
And Saul is going to go up against the Philistines as a leader. But they're not able to knock them out all the way, it seems. So here they are, the Philistines, great enemy of Israel. And they have a battle. And who wins? The Philistines win. So the leaders say, and you can certainly understand, why did this happen? When God is with us, we never lose. And we just lost. So it must be that God is not with us. We remember this, a similar thing happened when Joshua was the leader. But there was a different response. When this happened to Joshua, he tore his clothes. He was on his face before Yahweh. And he said, why? And then he was actually directed by God to get up off his face, stop praying, because there was sin in the camp that needed to be dealt with. But in this particular case, the leaders say, "Um, we understand. We know why we lost. And we know how to fix it. Go get God. He's in the box. Hophni and Phinehas from Shiloh, the central sanctuary, bring the ark of God into the camp. Well, the response of the people? We read it, didn't we? They, they shouted. I mean, they made a big shout. And maybe that, remember, that helps us remember. You remember the ark and the people? They marched around Jericho. They marched around Jericho. And then what did all the people do? They shouted. And the walls fell down. And they won a wonderful victory. So now the ark has come to the camp. God's with us now. And they shouted. And then the Philistines beat them again. Verse 10 says it was a slaughter. A slaughter. But there's more. We now find that Eli dies after hearing a message. You remember the phrase in our last, in, in, in chapter 3? It was a message that was going to make the ears tingle. And this message that would make ears tingle is also the message that broke the heart of Samuel. For if you want to read it carefully and take the time, you will see that there are five times, five times in this little narrative where we read, the ark of God has been captured. In fact, would you say that with me right now, please? The ark of God has been captured. No! It must not be. It cannot be. Not the ark of God. These pagan Philistines, they can't possibly have captured the ark of God. The ark of God has been captured. Phineas' wife dies in childbirth. And whatever name this baby might have been given is changed so that the new name for this new baby is Ichabod. No glory. The glory has departed. It's gone. What a terrible name to give a baby. What a terribly meaningful name it is. Ichabod. The glory has departed. So in this scene, God was not there. 
You see, they thought, the Israelites thought, that God was in the box. It was not a symbol of His presence. It was His presence. And they could use it. They could control Him. They could bring Him to the battle. They would manage the whole affair. They were confused. And the God that they understood and the God of their minds and imaginations was the God who was not there. The Israelites. And the God who was not there. Let's think about a second scene as well. The Philistines. And the God who is not there. The Philistines also thought that they had God in the box. And that they had captured Him. And so they bring him into the temple of Dagon as a prisoner of war. For you see, in the ancient Near East, when when armies battled, it was never just a matter of armies battling and waging war. It was always the god, the gods of the nations, of the armies that were also waging war. So in this particular battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, it was also Yahweh and Dagon who were waging war. And who won? Dagon. And they thought they would bring God in the box into Dagon's temple as a prisoner of war. Well, we know what happened. Remarkable, isn't it? The next day, they get up and Dagon is prostrate. Dagon is on his face. The victor is on his face before the defeated Yahweh. A symbol of Yahweh's presence. So what do you do? Well, you know what you do. You, you prop up the God again. That's what you need to do. The God toppled over, so you prop it up. Next day, Dagon the statue, the idol, is now again down. This time decapitated and hands cut off. Again, warfare at this particular time. There were many times that what you did was kind of a grisly, gory kind of thing, but you decapitated your enemies. You cut off their hands to validate your victory. Flash forward. Do you remember what David did after he fought the Philistine Goliath giant warrior? He cut off his head. So here's Dagon. (laughs) There he is. And notice this, the hands are cut off, right? Read carefully this section, and you know what you're going to find? About a half a dozen times, you will see the hand of the Lord. Yahweh's hand is mentioned in the presence of the hands cut off of Dagon. Well, the Philistines thought the ark had fallen into their hands. And now to their horror, 
they begin to understand that no, the truth is, the reality is that, that, that they have fallen into the hands of Yahweh. To their horror. This is a very dangerous object. So what are you going to do? They know how to handle angry gods. So they have a very wonderful plan here. They prepare a guilt offering. Isn't that interesting? A guilt offering. And the guilt offering needs to be something, something very special, something very valuable, and so gold. And it also involves what, is, what was known as sympathetic magic. So if you have something that you want to go away, what you do is you make a, an object that's like that. And so when that goes away, the problem will go away. So this plague that has been affecting them. And the Philistines were organized and, and they had five principal cities and they had five lords over those cities. So now they have a plan. Make models, gold models of the tumors and of the rats and, 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 and put it in a box. And this will be like this will be a guilt offering, but because you see they don't know is this a coincidence? Is this bad luck, or is this the work of the God of Israel? And this is the way they'll find it out. They have the offering. They put it on a cart. They take two cows, cows that have never been under their yoke. They're not going to pull together. There's no way that just doesn't happen. And they've just given birth. They'll never leave their calves. They'll never pull together. They'll never be able to figure out any route. Would you please turn to chapter 6, verse 12? And I want you to read with me. Let's read in unison, verse 12. Everybody have it? Let's read it. And the cow... Louder, please. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. <laughs> the ark is returned to Israel after seven months exile with the Philistines. But this now turns out to be something that is dangerous for the Israelites as well. You know, gods are dependent on man. We make them. We prop them up. When they topple. But do not miss the significance. Mankind and the whole of creation down to cows are dependent on and directed by the purposes and plans of the Lord God King of the universe. These cows might have been mooing. They might have been... Yeah, they're leaving their cows, but they went straight back to Israel this border community of Beth Shemesh. Oh, there's so much. We're moving over so quickly here. But we, did Israel need to know more about the God of the covenant who had entered into covenant with them? You bet. 
Israel needed to know so much more about this, this, this wonderful, glorious God who had entered into a unilateral covenant, a covenant that would be kept. They needed to know more about that God. They were confused. Did the Philistines need to know more about the only God, the only living and true God? Oh, yes, they did. They were confused too. But third scene, us and the God who is not there. Just maybe we have more to learn about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to learn more about Him. One thing we learn from this section is that He is not safe. We relate to Him with love, but we also relate to Him with reverential fear. Jonathan Edwards said, It is the absence of godly fear that signifies lack of knowledge of God. Get it? If there's no godly fear, whatever, we th- whatever God we think we know, it's not the God of Scripture. Godly fear. It's not safe. He's not safe. I'll share with you a quick quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy and Susan's thoughts go to what Aslan is actually like. If he's a king who is safe, they reason, that will certainly be of great comfort in light of the battle being all but lost. Is is he a man? asks Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I would thought he was a man. Is he quite safe. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most of us or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here's the title of a book I haven't read, but I'm instructed by the title alone. Your God is not safe. Rediscovering the wonder of a God you can't Control by Mark Buchanan. Then I want to call your attention again. I don't know if you read it yet or not, but I have a quote from uh, Dale that's up in the front of of the bulletin there for tonight. Hear this quote again. Whenever the church stops confessing 
Thou art worthy. And begins chanting, Thou art useful. Well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. So what's all this about? There are many lessons here. The one I chose to kind of dwell on a bit tonight is this one. All gods, all pretender contenders for our worship and our service and our trust, they must topple. They must be seen decapitated and without hands. False ideas of God must be cleared away, leaving the truth. Gods of our making and choosing and imagination. You see, we're all extremely good at designer gods. They must be exposed. They must be exposed by the Spirit of God and His grace. We'll keep losing hope in everything that deceives us in preparation to hope in, to worship, to love, and to fear the Holy One the Holy One, who alone does not deceive us. He's the only God there is. And He is the God who is there. Let's pray. Father, only by Your Spirit can we be delivered from the silliness of our pretending to be God and turn You into a God that we want to do our bidding, that we think we can control. Oh, Father, only Your Spirit can return us to the place where we come and bow and with glad submission and with reverential awe say it's not about you serving us but it is about our serving you forgive us for all the times we're so quick we're so ready we're so skilled in making you a little God in our image to do our bidding and think we are right in being angry with you when you don't do what we want you to do. Oh, Father, may we be prostrate before you lost in wonder, prepared to say we are not our own. We belong to you. Take us 
Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.